That's it. That's what. What's the idea? Well, what's the big idea? What's the big idea? What's the big idea, Egghead? What's the big idea? Welcome back to What's the Big Idea. I literally still have goosebumps from the conversation that I had with Eldred Jackson III today. It was a reminder of the spirituality of conversation, that when someone is so in their own experience, authentic, raw, real, and you give yourself to that sharing and curiosity and wanting to understand someone that you can literally transcend the self. And I I told Eldra that I had so many of those moments in our conversation today. He, he is an incredible man and you're going to find out why, but a quick introduction to Eldra Jackson, the third, I first learned about him through his incredible Ted talk, which we will link in the show notes Uh, where he navigates the subject of toxic masculinity through his own experience being incarcerated for 25 years, where he was serving out a life sentence. And he navigates the experience of what parts of himself he gave up to go down the path of being a gangster, to getting incarcerated for the first time when he was 14, to getting a life sentence in his early 20s. And then most importantly, the moment where his entire life changed and he was introduced to an organization called Inside Circle that gave him the opportunity to express so much of this hidden struggle that he had hidden his entire life and find some clarity about why he was doing the things that he had been doing. And what's most important about his own discovery and his own journey, and he owns this, the the pain that he's caused for so many, but he used that to then share this experience with others and, and takes us through his own experience, creating spaces for incarcerated men around the country now to to have these experiences where they can navigate and uncover these hidden wounds these parts of themselves that they're never allowed to experience and the word that comes to mind and i shared this with eldra is that he is sharp he is so raw and real with his story but he shares it with a sharpness and he's so present to everything he's talking about and so clear so if you are ready for incredible story and a beautiful insight and take on modern masculinity and what the world needs for men buckle up ladies and gentlemen eldra jackson the third all right and welcome back to what's the big idea here with eldra jackson the third elder thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today well you're welcome very much thank you for having me and Eldred, you know, I first discovered your work through your, your powerful TED Talk, which was one of just the, the most elegant, articulate, and impactful explorations of, of toxic masculinity that I ever encountered, really when I started to get more interested in the in the masculinity space. And so, you know, just thank you so much for, for all of your work and your time and your energy. And I'm, I'm really excited to... Uh, to dig in a little bit deeper to your heart and your head and, and hear what's going on for you today. So thank you for being with us. Well, again, you're, you're welcome. And I'm uh, looking forward to having my heart and mind and spirit dug into. <laughs> well, why don't we, you know, why don't we start here? It's, you know, when we, I rewatched your Ted talk before, uh, before we, we got onto the call today. And, and I was thinking to myself that I was curious as you talked about, you know, at a very young age, kind of opting into your, your chosen profession of, of gangster. And you talked about kind of your life of crime. And I'm curious, what were you like before you opted into that life of crime? What were you like as a kid and where were you and what was your life like? Uh, well, what I was like before that was uh, I, I was an athlete. I was uh, what they considered to be a, a tremendous baseball player. Uh I was in the BMX bikes. I, I was in Cub Scouts, Weebelows, Boy Scouts. 
uh, from the outside looking in, you know, I was an all-American little kid, you know, straight-A student, uh, mother, father, sister, brother. And uh, I guess looking at me, you might think, you know, that I was happy. Uh, it, if, if we dive underneath the surface and, and look a little bit deeper, I, I was confused. I was lost. I was uncertain of myself. And all of those things that I just mentioned were facades that I was, they were roles I was playing for the, for the rest of the world. That, that's what the world, you know, wanted, or in my mind as a, as a youth, appeared to want. So that's what I gave them, you know, on, on an excellent level. Yeah. And what, when you talk about kind of putting on that persona to appease some of those expectations of the world and family, what was, what was your reality in terms of what was your kind of hidden struggle or challenge that, that you were experiencing? My hidden struggle uh, was not understanding who I was as an individual, not knowing my place, not knowing my purpose, uh, you know, self-esteem shot to hell. Uh, just, just not knowing how to communicate and the people around me, not really knowing that, uh, uh communication was needed or a, a deeper dive underneath the surface was needed to, you know, get into some of the issues that, that I was dealing with. So there was, uh, an internal struggle, you know, to try and I, I won't say deal with those things, but keep those things suppressed. And, and me being uncomfortable, you know, in my own skin, you know, keeping that suppressed. And how does that suppressed kind of emotion and, and person translate into some of the decisions that you started to make into your, your kind of adolescent, teenage and, and young adult years? Well, uh, that suppression, you know, it, it's, it's just like a, a, a pressure cooker. You know, you, you keep a lid on, on boiling water long enough and sooner or later the top's gonna blow and and what i was suppressing were were issues that occurred you know a little further back in my childhood that that stemmed from from sexual abuse i was i was sexually abused by a couple of babysitters and there were messages that i picked up from those encounters and those messages that i picked up they were always you know latent just beneath the surface and and as i grew up and got into my adolescent years there was a situation where i was uh banned from playing sports one summer because me and my friend stole his mom's car and wrecked it and that was a perfect storm for me to really go off into some negative decision making and, and, and a lot of those, those stories that I was telling myself about who I was and what I was as a person and, and, and what other people were allowed me to make the transition from, you know, athlete, boy scout, uh, uh, scholar to, you know, gutter rat gangster. Hmm. And so, and when did you find yourself in, in jail or in prison trouble with the law for the first time? Uh, the first time I found myself in trouble with the law, I was, well, I, the first time I found myself incarcerated, I was 14 years old. Wow. Uh, I was in, uh, out here in California, they have what's called the California Youth Authority. Now it's called DJJ, the Department of Juvenile Justice, but it's basically uh children's prison. It's actually, you're doing state time. Uh, so that, that was the first time I, I found myself incarcerated. I got incarcerated for, uh, a, a false imprisonment and assault with a deadly weapon. And, you know, now looking back, obviously we're going to, we're going to dig into your work with the prison system and, and reform efforts. And I'm just curious now looking back on that experience as a young person who was incarcerated, how did that impact your, your mentality, your mindset, your state of being? It's who were you when you, when you went in and who were you when you came out? The first time I went in and came out. Yeah. Uh, well, who I was the first time I went in was somebody who, who 
really lacked uh, a, a vision and a, a direction about who I wanted to be in life and where I wanted to go in life. And when I came out after that first round of incarceration, I was a little more focused about who I wanted to be and where I wanted to go. And pretty much who I wanted to be and where I wanted to go was uh, I wanted to be the black Tony Montana. I wanted to be Scarface. I wanted to take that idea and thoughts that I had previously about what being a gangster was or what being a criminal was all about. And I wanted to take that to new heights. So that first round of incarceration introduced me to a lot of different characters and elements of crime that previously I was uh, naive to and, and, and I started to get schooled to. So for me, the first time I went to jail and every successive time after that, it was like going away to college. It was like going away to crime college. Mm. And so, you know, and it sounds like because you were in and out of prison for for how many years? Uh, well, the first time I went to I, I was incarcerated, I was 14. So I went back and forth as a juvenile until I was 18. And uh, I got I got locked back up, went back to Hawaii on a on a, a parole violation when I was 18. And I was released just a, about a month or so after my 19th birthday. And 21 days later, I was arrested for a series of, cor- of crimes that. Uh, got me committed to the California Department of of Corrections for a a life sentence. So when I was 19, I went away for life and and stayed in the California prison system for uh, the next 24 years. I mean, and what what is that moment like where you get a sentence like that handed down to you for life in prison? Well, uh, I can remember as as I sit here and and I talk about it, I was sitting in the courtroom. I had two co-defendants. So there were three of us who were uh, arrested, tried and convicted. And when the guilty verdicts came in, we already knew, you know, a, a couple of the the crimes that were committed carried a mandatory life sentence. So we didn't even have to make it to sentencing to know, you know, we'd be going away forever. And when they came back with the guilty verdicts, my head dropped. And, and I can remember a tear rolling down my eye and telling myself, well, you, you fucked up. There's, you know, it's, it's too late to start crying and being sorry now. It's time to, you know, buck up and, and, and do this. You're going to the big house. So I wiped the tear away and, and, and resolved within myself, you know, this, this is going to be my life. So I'm going to be the best damn convict I can be. And so I, I steeled myself internally to move forward with that mindset. And then when you think about being the best convict that you can be, what does that mean to you? Well, what it meant to what me, preparing for it? Yeah. What, what it meant to me at that time was, number one, making certain that I was somebody who the other convicts, who the other prisoners, inmates, whatever you choose to call them, when when they heard my name or they looked at me or they thought about me, the first thing that would come to their mind was, don't fuck with him. There's a lot of other fish in this sea that you can fool with, but leave him alone. Because if you fuck with him, it's going to be ugly. So that's number one. And that comes from a place of fear. That comes from a place of not wanting to be bothered, of not wanting to be victimized by somebody else. So in order to do that, in my mind, I had to create a persona that was just so gargantuan and outsized that, you know, people were like, yeah, it, it's not even he's crazy, you know, for lack of a better term. There, there's a whole bunch of other stuff that we could do that would be a whole lot easier than messing with a human hand grenade. Uh, so that that's one aspect. And another aspect of, of being the best damn convict I could be. Uh, involved continuing to engage in the activities that I was engaging in, you know, when I was in society and 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 running around in the criminal underworld. So, you know, uh, gang banging, uh, drug dealing, uh, uh, trading in arms, uh, assault, uh, uh, conspiracy, all of the you know things that go along with the criminal underworld, and doing it at a very uh, proficient and efficient rate. That, you know, was what I 
envisioned as, you know, the best convict I could be. Because, you know, that was going to be my life. That's where I was going to be. I'm going to make my home. So I'm going to carve out my space, my little fiefdom and, 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 and make myself comfortable until I can, you know, find a way to, to, to effectuate a prison break. Yeah. Elder, I'm curious, as you, as you revisit some of these times in your life and, and now where you are such a, a force for, for good in the world and with so many, what does it feel like to revisit these times in your life, to go back into these, these moments uh, now as the man you are today? Well, to, to go back into these places today as the man I am, I've, I've gotten to a place where I have surrendered to the, uh, the knowledge that everything that I have been through, everything that I've experienced, everything that I have seen is for a purpose. And that purpose is for something greater than myself. And and sometimes, and, and I want to be very clear because I don't want anybody who hears this to think that I am minimizing the, the negative impact that I've had on other people because I hurt a lot of people in my past. I, I, I left a, a wake of destruction in my path. And and I, and I I'm, I'm I'm remorseful about that, and and I'm 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 truly sorry about that. And and so yeah. go ahead. No, 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 go ahead. And and so when I say that everything that I've been through is for a purpose, I mean I've experienced things, you know, traumas and whatever else I've experienced for the benefit of being where I'm at now today, talking to Andrew Horn. And talking to whoever else I talk to, talking to at-risk youth that we deal with, talking to uh, 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 other other prisoners, you know, when we go in representing Inside Circle to support their rehabilitation. Had I not been to the places I've been and experienced the things that I've experienced, I wouldn't be somebody who is a quote-unquote credible messenger to reach those cohorts. I'm somebody who's walked in a lot of different shoes, who's who's been in a lot of different places. And that gives me the ability to reach across a lot of different uh, boundaries that 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 other people might not be able to to be able to communicate with people and show them something different. And beautifully said. Yeah, I oftentimes work with people who are preparing for keynote presentations, TED Talks, whatever that may be. And, and what you so beautifully articulated is, is the power of our lived experience to connect with people who are currently in that experience yeah. and where we can be uniquely useful. Oftentimes, I like to think of it as, as a calling is where your story, like you just said, whatever that may have been, whether you were you know, the victim of abuse, whether you've been incarcerated, whether it was something that was, you know, is uh, surface level is, is social anxiety or, you know, being challenged with a learning disability, that whatever that struggle may have been, that to, to own it, to honor it as what it was, and then to use that to support people who are in that, that experience is a way that we can turn some of that struggle into, into service. And I think that you're, you're such a, a direct example of, of just that. So it's really, it's powerful to, to hear you talk about it. And so Eldra, before we, we move forward to kind of the, the transformative moments of what set you on to your current path, uh, what I want to do is to just hear for, for people who have never had the experience of being incarcerated, you know, with your experience and the amount of people that you currently work with, what what do you wish people knew about the like the, the prison system about jail about what what being incarcerated does to the mindset of someone who's in prison? What do you wish more people knew about that experience? Uh, what I wish more people knew about that experience is that. For the most part, in, in, in our society, in, in the United States, the, the jail system, prison system, whatever you choose to call it, is not designed to support and or heal. It is designed to break and crush and grind. And when you do that to a human... 85% of people who are incarcerated are coming back into society. So when people get locked up and they, and they get put away, 
they're not gone forever. 85% of those who are incarcerated and shipped away are coming back into the community. So if we're thinking about the concept of taking somebody and breaking them and crushing them and grinding them and dehumanizing them and humiliating them in every way possible, and then sending them back out into the community basically as a rabid beast. I don't know what more I can say. That I mean, I, I think you know that would open the uh, arena for some discussion and/or thought about you know how we look at the corrections uh, system as a whole. And and what are your thoughts there? Because I feel like that that is kind of the crux of the the paradox is this idea of are we focused on punishment or rehabilitation, and how do we consider the former a little more deeply? And so when you think about truly using prison as a system that rehabilitates people so that they can come back in and be, um, you know, uh, I would say kind of productive feels like the wrong term, but just kind of like useful, maybe not even the right word, but just good citizens as they come back into society. Healthy. healthy. More healthy healthy is a good word because whatever they choose to do from that point is on them just so long as they're doing it from a healthy place from their core. Healthy is the word. Thank you for that. And so what are your thoughts of someone who spent so much time navigating the system of, of what are the systems or even if there are counties or countries that are using the prison system for true rehabilitation? Who, who are the, the best actors in that space who you think are getting it right? Well, uh, I would use as, as an example uh, uh, Sweden. I believe it's Sweden. Uh, they have a, a max. They got a top of the amount of years that somebody can do uh, inside of a a correctional facility. And I don't know if you remember, it was a few years back, last decade or so. I don't think it was just been 10 years. Dude, you know, ran all across the countryside with with, with several machine guns. He killed like 70 or 80 people. Hmm. And uh, I, I believe the number is 23 or 24. That's the maximum amount of years that he can do in prison in that country. And the whole thing is from day one, from the day that he was arrested and or convicted, they are designing a program specifically to meet his needs, his causative factors. What are the things in his background? What is it in his psyche that broke, that got him to the point where it was rational in his head to run roughshod across the country with machine guns, just mowing people down. And they will be dealing with that over the course of the next however many years to work to try and get him back to a whole sense of self so that he can be reintegrated back into society. The only way he will do more time than that is if a panel of doctors, psychiatrists determine after that set amount of time that it's just not safe for him to be reintroduced back into the community. But short of that, he's coming home because the issues that got him to the place where he snapped and did what he did will have been number one, identified, number two, addressed, and number three, help him come up with an internal uh, 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 plan from which he can navigate to ensure that that doesn't happen again. And if he ever gets close to that point in himself, he'll know how to reach out and ask for some help. That's just one example. Yeah. And and I mean, I think you said a really important statistic that's worth repeating, which is that 85% of people who are incarcerated are coming back to society and what it, what is the system in place and how are those people going to be coming back into society with what tools and having addressed their problems in what way? You know, if it's, if it's just punishment without, I love how Gabor Monte speaks about addiction. He says that the addiction is not the problem. You know, it is the result of a problem. Yeah. And so it's like, we have to seek to what is the problem underneath and how do we speak to that and support that? A, a, a good way to, 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 to parallel it, because, you know, in, in, in this country, we're huge on, on animals, you know, SPCA and all of these sorts of things. PETA, you know, uh, Mike Vick did what he did, you know, with those dogs and, and, and publicly he was lynched, you know, for, 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 for cruelty to animals. And 
Had those animals gotten out and been running up and down the street, biting people and attacking people, collectively, we would have understood that. We would have understood that based on how they had been raised and how they had been treated and, and, and beaten and, and the messages that they had received, we could understand why they were acting like that. And there were organizations that would have taken them in and did their damnedest and invested tremendous amounts of money to rehabilitate those animals and then place them in capable homes to make certain they lived out their lives in relative comfort. So if we can do something like that for animals, what does that say about us not being able to do that for other human beings? Mm. That's uh, a challenging parallel to consider, but well said. And so, you know, as we go back into kind of this time in prison, you, you had a line where you talked about the, that you kind of, you, you had a moment where you considered your own mortality in prison. You, you talk about considering the, the reality that you might die in, in prison. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm curious if you kind of take us back into that moment. And then you also talk about at one point making a decision where you were going to save your life. And so if you take us back into that part of your life, what, where was the moment where it started to cross your mind that this could truly be your entire life, that you might die in prison? And then what, what took you to the moment? where your path really started to shift? Uh, well, what you're asking about is what I identify as my rock bottom moment, you know, just like a, a, an alcoholic or, or somebody who's addicted to any other substance, uh, hitting rock bottom. I, I was addicted to a lifestyle. I was addicted to criminal thinking. And so what I identify as my rock bottom of my addiction was sitting in the hole. I was in the shoe and the shoe is an acronym SHU for security housing unit. That's solitary confinement. Uh, I I had been sentenced to two years in the shoe for uh, assaulting another prisoner with uh, an inmate manufactured weapon. I tried to kill a man by stabbing him. And uh, gracefully, I failed at that attempt. So I, I was serving time in the shoe and I was in Corcoran, in Corcoran State Prison. And at the time, Charles Manson and Sirhan Sirhan were serving time there as well. And the shoe in Corcoran was designed so that it was split into two sides. You had the security housing unit and you had the protective housing unit. And the protective housing unit was for people who, you know, had uh, high profile crimes or whatever. It was deemed by the administration they needed to be separated from the general population. Charles Manson, you know, was notorious for the helter uh, helter skelter uh, uh, rampage. Sirhan Sirhan was uh, the assassin of of, uh, Bobby Kennedy. And so I could look out of my door and see them being escorted to yard with other people. They were allowed to be around other human beings. And and Charles Manson had never killed anybody with his own bare hands. He just used his silver tongue to talk other people into committing atrocities. And he was allowed to be around people and, and, and will potentially wield that influence on other people. And here I was, uh, a, a relative nobody, and they had classified me as standalone, walk alone. And what that meant was, was that I couldn't be housed with another human, and I couldn't go to the yard with another human. And everywhere that I went, I was wearing belly chains and shackles, and I was escorted by a, a correctional officer. And there was a gunner with a mini fourteen pointed at me, with the chains and shackles on everywhere that I went. And so looking at that, I asked myself, damn, how did I wind up here? Because I'm, you know, basically a finger snap away from death row. And and here you got two of the most notorious people in, in the uh, California prison lore. You know, they're out playing guitar and, 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 and you know, throwing spreads and laughing and joking with their peers. And, and I'm, you know, stuffed in a shoebox. What, what, what the fuck is going on here? That was rock bottom for me when I looked back on 
what I could have been, who I could have been, the advantages that I had growing up as a youngster that I made choices to turn my back on, you know, growing up in a two parent household, uh, never knowing what it was to be hungry and, and those sorts of things. I didn't have those sorts of quote unquote excuses about why I uh, made the choices that I made. I was just, you know, on some dumb shit. And I mean, in this moment, when you talk about solitary, you know, I just feel my, my stomach kind of dropping as, as we're talking about it. And again, if, if you could, what, what for you personally was the impact of that depth of isolation of not being with people and being just with yourself for, and were you, so you were there for two years? That time, yes, I was there for two years. What? So you talked a little bit about the, the mindset of what being incarcerated did and how it shaped you. And so you know, similar question, if you look at, at isolation specifically, being in the shoe, how does that impact who you are, your mind, your body? What, what started to happen to you while you were there? Well, uh, before that time in the shoe, uh, 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 anytime I was in solitary confinement, it for me it was a, a it was a mental chess game. It was me against the administration. It was me against the government, and it was all about turning myself into the most proficient weapon I could be possible. And 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 when I say weapon, I mean weapon of not just body but mind and spirit as well. So it was always a practice of of honing my intellectual skills, honing my spiritual skills, honing my physical speak skills so that the experience wouldn't break me because that's what solitary confinement is designed to do. It's, de- it's designed to take that, 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 that breaking of spirit and will to a completely different level and grind you into dust. So I was always committed to not being ground in the dust and, and, and being somebody who could come out on the other side even stronger. And in this particular uh, instance, when I was in the hole, uh, uh, hitting that rock bottom, I came to a point where, where I, I pretty much looked in the mirror and, and, and asked myself, you know, how the hell did I wind up here? How the hell did I wind up so isolated from people and, and, and just pretty much viewed as a monster. And that's what I started to see when I looked in the mirror. I started to see the monster that other people were seeing. I started to see what they had me classified as. So that was a pivotal moment because I could either sink off into the belief of being a monster and go on forward living my life from that state of mind or I could make a switch and start to go in the other direction. And, and, and that's where my fork in the road was. Mm. And, you know, so I, I want to <laughs> put a fork in the fork in the road and ask one question. Cause you, you mentioned something when you were talking about becoming sharp when you were in the shoe and you talked about becoming spiritually sharp. Mm-hmm. What, what do you mean by that? Well, what I mean by that is being able to find that, stillness that that place in myself from which I can come become completely calm and no matter what mayhem or haywire activities are going on around me I can be what they call in the zone and not affected by it totally aware of it but able to move kind of like the matrix the matrix is the best way i can describe it when neo and all of them are doing what they're doing and every all of the bullets and all of that crap is slowing down that place when i'm in that place spiritually that's how things move around everything you know moves super slow but i'm moving in real time Hmm. and how did you cultivate that skill like was this something that you 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 honed before you were in prison, or like how did you how did you cultivate the skill of, of being able to tap into the zone like that? I I believe that I was I was suited for that, being instilled with the discipline of a a, a drill sergeant father. So I, I grew up in a disciplined household. So having that discipline really helped carry over into meditative practices. I I was into meditation before I was into really, quote unquote, self-help as a form of 
defense, as a form of self-defense, as an offensive weapon, studying Tai Chi, studying martial arts and things like that. A, a great deal of that has to do with breath work. Was there a, a particular modality of meditation that you found most useful? Uh, well, I uh, in the in the beginning, uh, my go to was Buddhist meditation and following the breath and focusing on the mind and trying to still the mind, and and that led me to uh, studying Taoism and and Tai Chi. Hmm. That's beautiful, and. Um... So now we'll, we'll revisit the fork and you talk about this moment where you were kind of had this choice to, to see well you, you started to see this air quotes monster in the mirror and you had a decision to decide you had your fork in the road. And so what was the switch that you just talked about? Uh, the switch was uh, in that moment, what I told myself was what I've been doing up to this point that's gotten me here obviously isn't working. So I'm done with this. I don't know right in this moment what the alternative is or, or, or what it is I need to do on the other side of the coin, but I know I'm done with this side of the coin. So from that point, when they let me out of the hole, uh, they sent me to uh, California State New, uh, uh, Prison Sacramento, uh, which is New Folsom. And as soon as I got there, you know, I got the fellas that were there that were from uh, my street gang and I let them know I, I was done. You know, that time, this this past episode that I went to the hole for is the last time I'm doing something in the name of this gang. Uh, you know, if, if you see me getting my brain stomped out on the other side of the yard, don't come running because because I got a plan. I got everything under control. And on the flip side of that, if you've got something going on and uh, uh, don't expect me to come because I'm not coming, I'm, I'm, I'm moving in a different direction now. And so I basically started to walk alone and 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 and, and investigate, you know, different disciplines and and meditations and, and self-help practices and 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 read different, you know, uh, uh psychologists, you know, uh, books and, and, and things like that to try and find something that could bring me peace and fill the, the hole that I had just put basically in my essence by getting rid of the criminal activity. And how did they receive that request? Uh, they actually received it quite well because I was always somebody who was viewed as uh, a thinker, somebody who always had a plan in mind. And so they just took it as I had some sort of long, long range scheme, some sort of long range plan, which, you know, to be honest, there, there was a plan because I knew that in order for me to get out of prison, I, I probably wasn't going to parole through the parole board. So I was going to have to escape. And there was no way I was going to get to a prison with a low enough classification to be able to escape as long as the security and investigation unit was still looking at me as somebody who was heavily tied to gang activity, drug activity, criminal activity. They, they were always going to be up my butt with a, with, with a microscope. So I had to distance myself from that cohort. So in the background, that scheme was running. And along the way, my life was saved. <laughs> Tell us a little more about that moment. Well, uh, uh, along the way, you know, uh, uh, some of the things that I, I was investigating and, and getting off into uh, a, a big book that I was into was uh, called The Disappearance of the uh, Universe by Gary Renard. And it, it's basically talking about killing the ego and uh, uh, how how much the ego plays in in the decisions that an individual makes. So I was I was involved in a lot of different groups like that, and people who were involved in Inside Circle, I was rubbing elbows with, and and they were seeing 
something different in me. They were seeing a different light in me. So I, I was invited to uh, join the inside circle. And, and that was a truly defining moment in my life because it put me in a space where I was able to really then face myself and really look at myself and battle the demon of me. And so tell me, tell me, tell me about that first experience walking into a circle, having never experienced something like that. What happened and how did you end up in that circle? What was your thought process going into it? Were you open to it? Were you resistant? What, what clicked for you in that first circle? Well, going into it, I wasn't resistant because I knew most of the people who were in the circle from from either doing time with them in other places or from uh, uh, dealing with them in other groups, other other settings. And and, and we were at a, we were all at a place in our lives where we were having, you know, what you would consider to be grown man conversation. It wasn't the run of the mill yard gossip and, you know, who's doing what and all of that. It was like, you know more meaning of life type conversations. So I kind of knew where all of the people who were in that group were. And so I figured it was something serious and it was worth, you know, checking out, but actually going into the circle, uh, uh, once all of the, the, the formalities of, 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 uh, you know, the, the, the guidelines and agreements and accepting me into the circle were, were handled. And a man actually stepped out onto the carpet and did some work uh it it blew my mind it blew my mind because it was a man that i was familiar with and i had been around for years and i i i was familiar with him and i say familiar back then i would say i knew him i thought i knew him until i saw him got on get out on the carpet and do work and i got the opportunity i was blessed with the opportunity to 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 experience that man's work and 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 cry and and see myself in another individual because when he got out there and did his work, he was doing my work, and it was it was humbling. It was it was revelatory. It was eye opening. It was like uh uh you know I had died, and you know you hear people talk about oh walk into the light. I was walking into the light. It was all those sorts of things for me. And so to paint a clearer picture for some people who might not be familiar with the work or Inside Circle, how would you describe what, so what is Inside Circle and what is the work? Okay, well, Inside Circle is a, a it's a nonprofit organization that was uh, formed to support the quote unquote work uh, in, in, in prison, in, in New Folsom. And uh, it, it, it started because of a man named Patrick Nolan, who was serving time, he was doing life. Uh, and there was a racial riot, a huge racial riot in 1996 on B facility in New Folsom, uh, in which a, a man was shot to death. And, and a lot of other prisoners were uh, suffered a lot of uh, puncture wounds from inmate manufactured weapons. Some were life flighted out to local hospitals and a lot were, you know, treated locally. But when that lockdown was over, Pat went around on the yard to uh, influencers from from various groups and asked for permission to be able to get not necessarily the influencers, but have the influencers give the okay for their underlings to participate in a program that he was trying to put together. Mm. And Pat was somebody who had already started to do his own internal work. He was studying MKP, the Mankind Project, and and reading about the men's movement out in the world. And that was something that, you know, he had a vision of bringing into prison. And that's where Inside Circle was born. Uh, So doing that work involved in those early days, Bloods and Crips, uh, Aryan Brotherhood and Black Guerrilla Family, uh, uh, Northern Chicanos and Southern Chicanos, Nuestra Familia and, 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 and Mexican Mafia, all getting together in a room together without the intent of killing one another. So you had lions and hyenas sitting in a room, sitting around a circle, sitting around in a circle and trying to figure out how to communicate 
And along the way, we learned how to tap back into what it meant to be human, what it meant to love, what it meant to care about somebody else. And more importantly, what it meant to learn how to care about myself so that I have the capacity to care about somebody else. And what that looks like is a man being supported by other people as he journeys in him, inside of himself to figure out what his motivations are, why I do the things I do, where those thoughts come from, where that was born, because nobody just does things just because. There's always a motivation. There's always a genesis where those sorts of things come from. And, and, and that's kind of the best way I can articulate what the work is for somebody who, who's not, you know, hasn't been initiated into something like that. Man, I mean, when you talk about those rival factions being in there, I, I had goosebumps just thinking about how tense it must have been and, and alive. And, and so as you start to dive into the work yourself, what is the, the shift that you start to see in, in yourself? Like, how does your perception of, of who you are, why you had kind of chosen this, this path that you had was what it was, what started to emerge for you as you started to do the work yourself? Well, what began to emerge for me was, uh, the ability to go back to, you know, what I liken as the, uh, the original sin, the original wound, the original trauma, because a lot of my issues came from that place. A lot of my issues came from those instances of, 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 of molestation suffered as a child and, and, and the internal little seeds that I planted that began to flourish and, and, and played out later in my life, you know, things about being a victim, you know, I, I saw myself as a victim and I, I resolved that, you know, moving forward in my life, if there was a victim victimizer dynamic, I was going to be the role of victimizer. Uh, there, there was a, a, a an, an episode during one of those, uh, assaults on me where, uh, my my younger sister was threatened with uh, being sexually assaulted if I didn't give in, and 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 I gave in. And and one of the things that I told myself because of that was that I got hurt because I gave a damn about somebody else. So I trained myself to not give a damn about other people. I trained myself that caring about other people was was a flaw, was something that could you know put me in harm and in my experience, had put me in harm. So these were just a few of the things that were running in my in in me on the cellular level. So doing that work helped me go into those cells and find all of those little pieces and begin to extract what didn't work for me anymore and discard them. Mm. And so as you start to uncover these these hidden motivations that were there you start to connect with really kind of elder jackson the third for who he was in that moment and what he wanted to do how did you kind of transition from someone who was participating in this to someone who was also facilitating it for others uh well by doing my work because <laughs> the only way to facilitate this sort of work is to do my own work. It's impossible for me to walk with you into your deepest, darkest places if I've not walked into my deepest, darkest places as well. Because number one, I don't know how to support you in getting there. And once you get there, I'm going to be completely lost and unable to help bring you back from that place in a self, in, in a safe way. So if I'm not doing my own work, then I can't be a facilitator. Yeah. And, and for people who, a lot of people who listen to this podcast are versed in some modalities of, let's just call it of men's work, but also for, for people who maybe are not as versed, if you were to talk about kind of the, the process of doing this kind of deep inner work, what do you usually think of as kind of the process or how people begin? 
It's like, I think that what's so, so oftentimes difficult for people is taking that first step of being courageous to really kind of, uh, transmit, express, reveal the, the true self, some of these vulnerabilities, traumas that we may have experienced. And so when you speak to people who have never engaged in this type of work, how do you get them to take that first step to dive in? By giving them the invitation to be as open as they're comfortable being without fear of being judged, mocked, ridiculed, and create a space where they know that whatever happens in this space stays in this space. And if they reach a point where they get uncomfortable or it just pushes up against something in them that that, that they're like, okay, yeah, I, I'm not really feeling this, then they have the right to speak up and that will be honored. It's all about setting the container. It's all about setting the space and, 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 and getting a person. I, I would invite someone to speak as comfortably as they are willing to and provide the space for them to talk without interrupting. Because what I found in doing this work is that most people want to be heard. Most people want to be able to tell their story and not have somebody cut them off, but more importantly, not have somebody look at them like they're a zip damn idiot because most people are judging themselves mm. about their experience or about what's coming out of their mouth. So it's really about making certain that somebody feels comfortable and that they feel seen and acknowledged for you know who they are. Yeah, it's, we, we're about to have a, an incredible woman on the podcast. I don't know if you're familiar with the work of uh, Reverend Angel Kyoto Williams. I'm not familiar. Well, she has this, in, this incredible quote. And she says, to me, love is space, space for people to be exactly who they are and need to be. <laughs> and and meeting people is is something that whenever we we circle and process in our own groups, it's that reminder of like that that's kind of an expression of love is just holding space for them to be who they are and to not judge and that's powerful. And so you know, I think that you you mentioned the importance of the container. And so I'm curious of when you think about container setting, what are some of the elements? that we can, you talked about confidentiality, you talked about non-judgment. What are the other aspects of creating, let's call them safe spaces where people can really be themselves? Uh, a, another big one is speaking from the eye perspective. Yeah. And, and, and what that does is that makes certain that I get into the practice of owning my stuff, of owning what it is that I'm feeling. Because uh, if I'm not really uh, uh, familiar with that, and, and, and I speak in the third party or I, hey, you know what it's like when you're driving down the street and somebody cuts you off? Yeah, I can talk like that all day long. But if I am put into a position where I have to come from the, when I drive down the street and somebody cuts me off, dot, dot, dot. Okay, well, what comes next? I get pissed off. Okay. Well, what's that? What's, what's another, what's another way that I can articulate pissed off? Angry. Okay. So you get angry. So what's going on with that anger? That opens up a whole different ball of wax for people. That opens up a whole different ball of wax for me because then I can identify what's going on with me and I'm not uh, projecting my stuff onto other people. Uh, another thing that, that contributes to the container is, uh, uh, again, I said, you know, the right to pass. Uh, 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 and, and, and speaking truth, you know, everybody has the invitation to speak their truth, whatever that looks like, whatever that sounds like with the caveat that speaking truth is not a justification or a green light to slyly disrespect somebody and then circle back around and say, Oh, that's my truth. Yeah. Andrew's a punk. And, and, but that's my truth. no, Andrew's a punk. That's your opinion, but that's not true. Yeah, absolutely. And, and there's there there there's some you know some ritual that goes into it as well. There are some things that 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 go into setting that space, you know, to to kind of set the tone and and get people to drop into their body and 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 invite them to get out of their head and get into their body and and what they're feeling so it, it's a combination of things that contribute to building a container yeah 
Yeah, it's, uh, it feels like a masterclass listening to you talk about this. And, um, you know, I'm curious when you when you think about these types of spaces, um, how do you how do you translate this to a, a wider audience? It's what do you think it's when it comes to kind of the evolution of, of men and, you know, in the wake of Me Too, I think that masculinity, that toxic masculinity is really thrust kind of into the forefront of kind of our cultural conversation in this moment. And so what is, what is your, your goal or your dream in terms of how we can create these types of spaces for, for more people? Where do they exist? Is it extended to religious institutions, developmental institutions, schools? How, how do we, how, in your opinion, is, is the most effective way to share these types of spaces and opportunities for men to connect and communicate outside this rigid model of, of masculinity to do this type of work? Uh, it's, it's by, uh, utilizing platforms such as this and getting the word out and inviting people to come. And, and the first thing that comes to me when you talk about how do we spread this and get this into other institutions at Inside Circle, uh, there are several of us who are in the, in the world now who were formerly incarcerated and were in, inside doing this work. And now we're out and we are in positions of leadership within the organization. And for the last two and a half, three years, we've been running community events. So yes, we still do the work inside with men and we do men's circles, but we do community events that are open to everybody. We're doing uh, all inclusive, all gender events over the last two, three years. So we, we, we do uh, events at a, an office called Trium uh, the uh, Trium group, they donate space for us to do community events once a quarter. And we have men and women sitting in circle together doing this work. So imagine, you know, for your listeners who are familiar with this work, you put Mankind Project and Woman Within in the same in weekend intensive, doing the work together and facilitating one another. And it is some of the most powerful work I have ever been a party to in my life. Because oftentimes you have men who have issues that you can trace back and track back to women. And oftentimes women have issues that can be traced back and tracked back to men. So you have the spaces where women are doing their thing together and men are doing their thing together. But when you bring the two together in a space that can hold that energy and a woman can do her work, whatever it looks like around issues with males, and you actually have males there who are present and can hold that energy and hold that space for her so she can do whatever the hell she needs to do. And likewise, you have strong women there who can hold that space for a man to do whatever he needs to do and get whatever he needs to get from that strong feminine. That's where healing is at. It's not about us doing it, you know, uh, behind closed doors and just men getting together and doing their stuff and just women getting together doing their stuff. This is a human thing. You know, that's like a a, a bunch of uh, white people getting together talking about we're going to figure out how to solve racism and everybody in the room is white. Yeah. And so when you think about those dynamics of bringing men and women together, is there anything specific that as it comes to facilitating that type of connection in those environments, what, what in your own experience has been helpful to, to create that type of experience in a positive, safe manner when you're bringing people of different genders together to do the work? having everybody sit at the table to make decisions about what safety looks like. Mm. So, I mean, the, 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 uh, the, the intensives that I'm talking about inside circle is hosting. Yes. It's an inside circle event. And we also invite support facilitators who are very experienced women from different organizations like women within and next step and her to come in and 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 serve as uh, uh, serve on the facilitator team as well, and their input is not just valued; it's necessary because I don't know what women need to feel safe, but women do. It would be very egotistical 
and short-sighted on my part to think that, oh, we're inside circle. We've been facilitating this work for a quarter century. And so it's a one size fits all sort of thing. It, it doesn't go like that. So it's about being all inclusive, not just in the workshop, but on the input and how the workshop is set up, how the container is set up and being open to being flexible and allowing spirit to bring what's needed. Because if something comes up and a woman needs something, I'm going to defer to the 20, 30, 40 years experience that the women of her and women within have about a particular process. And I'm going to follow their lead and I'm going to support them and go where spirit takes it. It, it reminds me of, of something I heard once, and it was talking about what's better than the golden rule, which is you know, obviously treat people as you would like to be treated. And it's the platinum rule is treat people as they would like to be treated, which exactly. requires a level of curiosity and, and inquiry to establish that kind of knowing. Exactly. Um, and so uh, you know, as someone who's really on the front lines of, of doing this kind of work, of working with men and, and also women, I'm curious, when, when you think of the concept of masculinity, um, what comes up for you and what do you wish more people understood about masculinity and, and the role that it has in, in how we, we behave, how we act? Uh, what, what comes to my mind of when I think about masculinity or I hear the word masculinity, that is an aspect of maleness. That's not an aspect necessarily of manhood. Mm. For me, there's a very big distinction between being male and being man. And I think where we lose a lot of people with the concept or the conversation around masculinity, especially if you throw that toxic in front of it is it, it sounds like it's uh, 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 an attack on manhood. Whereas for me, the conversation, if I'm involved in the conversation, it's more or less about raising awareness around aspects of traditional masculinity that are attached to maleness that affect people around me when I'm you know, exerting what I believe to be my manhood. So when I think about masculinity, I, I, I think about, you know, another aspect of maleness that can contribute to, you know, manhood, because everybody who, you know, was born of a certain gen gender is going to have certain aspects of, of, of masculinity and they're going to be male. That doesn't mean that they are going to be men. And so if you think about that concept of, of manhood, as you currently know it, let's say that if you had an opportunity to, to transmit that message of, of manhood to 12-year-old Elder Jackson III, what would you hope that he would know? Well, I hope that he would know that it is what I would transmit to 12-year-old me is that it's okay to feel. It's okay to to, 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 to be happy. It's okay to be scared. It's okay to be angry. It's okay to know fear. It's okay to know shame and guilt. Those are all aspects of being a human and to be a whole healthy human. It's imperative that you honor those pieces of yourself, not be ruled and controlled by them, but just recognize and see where they show up. And, and, and hold them up and look at them and, and discover where they come from and discover how you react when those things come up. Because from that place, you can then make a conscious decision to not react, but respond. Yeah. It's okay to care about other people. It's okay to show those emotions. It's okay to love and allow other people to love you. Those are a few of the message that I would hope I could pass on to him and, and that he would receive. I'm, I'm smiling on this end because I'm like, I'm going to share that with my son when he's <laughs> not older than three years old. <laughs> like he is right now. And, and Eldred, moving forward, what's, what's your dream? You've been doing this work now for, for how many years? Uh, what is this? Two, I've been doing this work since 2004. And, and my hope, and, and, and it's not just my hope, but it, it's the hope of every man who is still 
locked behind bars who are still doing this work, the men who are still serving life, doing life without life with the possibility. We all used to sit around and hope that one day people could see the light that exists within prison, the magic that was happening and the gold that was coming out of the men in there. And my hope is that not just that people get the opportunity to be exposed to that and see that, but that people out here get the opportunity to sit in a circle themselves and touch on their own magic and touch on their own goal. And that this spreads around the globe faster and more pernicious than the coronavirus ever could think of doing. And it touches every reach of humanity on the face of this planet. Amen. Elder, it's, you have you have a you talked about that that sharpness earlier, and it's uh, I feel lucky to to have you. I feel like on this team now, doing this kind of work because there's such a, a sharpness to the way which you, you use your words to to speak about your experience and and share your truth and how it's been helpful for you and how it can help others. And I'm just uh, I'm really grateful that you you've chosen to share your story in the way that you have, and I know that you've helped so many men because I know hundreds who've already watched the work and who've been impacted by it. And, uh, I really am excited to see how, how that influence and impacts continues to grow. And so thank you so much for, for everything you're doing for your word, your spirit, your heart, your brain, all of it. Well, uh, I will accept that. That's one of my pieces of work is accepting things like that because <laughs> that is something that's difficult. So I will just say you're welcome. <laughs> and so, Eldra, for the people who want to um, who want to learn more about you, about your work, what are the best resources or places to to check that out? How can they support you and what you're doing? The the best way to check out, you know, uh, who we are as Inside Circle is to go to the website www.insidecircle.org. Uh, you can you can find Inside Circle on Facebook. As Inside Circle, you can find Inside Circle on Instagram. You can find Inside Circle on Twitter. Find us, follow us, get involved, see what we're doing, see who our partners are, see who we're following, because we're not the only uh, organization who's doing this. There are a lot of organizations who are looking to support people, and that's who we support. We support people who support people. And, you know, we, we, we started this conversation talking about Hurt people, hurt people, healed people, healed people. And so I'm going to give you the floor if you get one closing message about what you wish people knew about that concept that hurt people, hurt people, and healed people, healed people. Uh, well, I'll, I'll use myself as an example. Uh, when I was living from a place of hurt, when I was acting from a place of being a hurt person, I went through 30-some-odd years of hurting people, of hurting people in some real fucked up ways. And when I got to a place where I was able to begin to heal, when I was open to receiving healing, I've been on a path and on a life journey of not just healing myself, but helping to build spaces and containers where other people can find it to heal themselves and take that to spread into the world to heal to heal others. So that is just one example, one very minute example of what that concept means about hurt people, hurt people, and healed people, heal people. And there we go. Eldra Jackson III, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the show. This is incredible and one I will certainly revisit. And I'm very excited to share this with the world. So thank you so much for taking the time. You are very welcome, sir. And we are signing off.